we should be discouraged against trying to circumvent God's ways and God's word and God's plan, because ultimately we're not going to achieve what he's promised apart from him. But we can also say that despite our failings, despite our waywardness and sinfulness, God often shows grace and mercy and faithfulness, regardless of how we we respond to him. Welcome back as we discuss the reading for week two of the Every Day with Jesus Bible reading plan. We're going to be giving you a preview of this week's reading. I'm here with Matthew Vitamin and Aaron Downs. Hello. Good to be with you, AJ. Glad to be with you guys here. Last week, we left off with Genesis 15, 6, where we're told that Abraham believed God's promises and it was credited to him as righteousness. Matthew? Can you give us a quick overview of this week's reading from Genesis 15, 7 through Genesis 27, verse 29? That section starts out God and his covenant that he makes with Abraham is uh, detailed in Genesis 15. Moving from there, we have, we have some happenings with um, Sarai and Hagar. Moving into Genesis 16, Genesis 17. Very exciting, Abraham and the covenant of circumcision. Isaac's birth is then promised. Then we have Abraham, Lot, the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, Abraham and Abimelech, if I'm saying that correctly. We have Isaac, finally born, the promised son to Abraham, which he didn't think was coming for a lot of it, but, uh, you know, God fulfills his promises. We have a little episode here with Hagar and Ishmael. From there, we have the sacrifice of Isaac, and unfortunately, Sarah does pass away in this reading. And we get into Isaac and Rebekah, and finally, Abraham's death and a little bit about his descendants. So a lot is covered there. I mean, we can kind of go back to the start um, of that section in in Genesis 15, God's covenant with Abram at the time. Um, what, I guess, what main points should we be aware of there, Aaron, when it comes to, to the covenant that God makes with Abram? So I would say that we want to connect this to what's already happened in Genesis 12, where God called Abraham, and there he made some significant promises to Abraham regarding offspring and land and blessing, and it seems that this relationship in Genesis 12 is covenantal. It's it's a serious relationship, but ultimately it's not until Genesis 15 that the covenant is made with Abraham. And when we talk about covenants in the Bible, this is a little bit outside of our realm of experience because we often deal with contracts, right? So we will make a contract with someone where we exchange goods for a certain sum of money or service or something like that. But I think we need to distinguish between covenants and contracts by noting that a covenant establishes a kinship relationship and it brings with it obligations and responsibilities. So when God here covenants with Abraham, it's as if God is making Abraham part of his own family. And it, it comes with certain obligations, both on Abraham and on the Lord himself. But ultimately, as God makes this promise with Abraham to give him offspring 
and land and blessing, uh, God puts Abram in a deep sleep. And this reminds us of Genesis, where God puts Adam in a deep sleep right before he brings Eve to him to form a different covenantal relationship between Adam and Eve. But here God puts Abram to sleep, and God essentially is indicating that I am going to make this happen. He has Abram cut animals in half. This is a pretty bizarre scene. And generally, when a covenant was made in the ancient Near East and they did this, the covenant partners would walk together in the middle of the cut-apart animals, hand-in-hand, probably barefoot. And essentially, as they're walking through these animals that have been cut in half, they're saying, if either of us violates this relationship, if we don't maintain faithfulness and steadfast love to one another, then what's happened to these animals should happen to whoever violated the covenant. But what's interesting in this situation, the Lord puts Abram to sleep and God through represented in the fire pot and the flame, God passes through this alone. And it's almost like God is taking an oath against himself saying that he's going to remain faithful to Abram and bring the promises of offspring and land and blessing to pass. When they did the ceremony and the cutting of the animals in half and all that, was that a sacrifice type thing or like, did they eat them? And have like a, a meal or did they just like cut them in half and leave them there? Yeah, from all we can tell is they were cut in half. They were left there. Obviously, in the text, it describes Abraham as defending these cut into animals from the carrion, the vultures that would come and eat them. So he fends them off. It doesn't seem that they participate in a covenant meal here. Later, we'll see Moses and the Israelites, ultimately the elders of the Israelites, sharing a covenant meal in the presence of God, but that doesn't seem to happen here. In the Septuagint, it doesn't say that Abraham drove them away, just says that the the birds descended and Abraham sat there. But it does seem like Abraham is being a new Adam, where Adam failed to defend the garden against the serpent. Abraham here is driving the, the birds of prey away from animals that are being cut in half. Yeah, a lot of people have made that observation, and I think it's it's probably valid. You do see Abraham participating in this, and I think in a defending sort of way. When it comes to Sarai and Hagar, obviously it's not ideal what they do. It's kind of Sarah and Abraham, I guess, fearing that God's promise isn't going to be fulfilled, and they just kind of take matters into their own hands. But is it? Am I, am I missing something? Is it not specifically kind of condemned by God in the story? I don't, there's, there's a lot of times where Abraham, you know, he kind of does stuff he shouldn't do or stuff that's much less than ideal, but I don't remember seeing a lot of direct rebuke from God or like, you screwed this up and now there are consequences because you stepped outside of my plan. I guess I don't, I don't see that a lot. And this is kind of one of the first big things where he goes he goes off on his own plan and tries to make it happen apart from God. Yeah, I'd say it's the the second time. Earlier in Genesis 15, you know, Abraham's getting nervous about God being able to come good on his promise to fulfill an error, and Abraham puts forth Eliezer of Damascus, and the Lord says no, reiterates his promise that you will have a son that will be an heir. And you're right, we do see Abraham and Sarah taking this into their own hands here in Genesis 16 with a similar situation where they think that it's a human way of being able to help 
God fulfill his promise by providing an offspring through the concubine Hagar. I think there's similarities to the scene in Genesis 3 where Eve gives Adam the fruit. There's similar verbs in Genesis 16.3. So Abraham's wife Sarai took Hagar, Batakah, her Egyptian slave, and gave Bata'en her, to her husband, Isha, Abram, as a wife for him. Now, if we look back at Genesis 3, 6, the woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at, and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she took Bataka, some of its fruit. So we have a similar, she took, just like Sarai took, and she ate it and she gave Bataen to her husband, Laisha, who was with her, and he ate it. I think the similar wording for Moses is intentional here. At the very least, it encourages us to see what Sarah is doing is on the same lines with what Eve did. I would agree. I think, Matthew, the author is expecting us to make moral judgments on our own. So he's not feeling like he needs to tell us that what Abraham does, or Abram in this instance, does is right or wrong. He expects us to have a moral compass that is able to detect whether Abram does what what he does is right or wrong. And he does embed clues like AJ is mentioning here on, on the morality of this decision. And by equating it, I think, thematically and linguistically with the actions of Eve in the garden, Moses is trying to show us that this was a bad situation. This wasn't right. This wasn't God's plan. And then ultimately that's confirmed as we keep reading into chapter 17 when God reiterates his promise to Abram that he will have many offspring through Sarah. And in verse 17 of chapter 17, Abram fell face down and laughed and said to himself, can a child be born to a hundred-year-old man? Can Sarah, a 90-year-old woman, give birth? So Abram said to God, if only Ishmael were acceptable to you. And Ishmael is the son of Abram and Hagar. Abram's saying, God, can you not just look at Ishmael as the the fulfillment of your promise. And God responds in 1719 that no, Sarah will bear you a son. So I think if we're unclear about the rightness and wrongness of Abram's and Sarai's action with Hagar in chapter 16, it becomes clear in chapter 17 that this was not, not God's plan for them. And it's not the way that God was going to show his faithfulness to them. Is there anything to be made, I guess, about the story in total that none of Sarah or Abraham's errors, it it doesn't seem like there were large judgments or negative consequences for them, whereas in other parts, other stories in the Bible, I mean, even Moses himself, um, you know, not getting to go to the promised land because of sins he committed or mistakes he made, Is there anything to be made of that? Because it seems like it's just like, okay, Sarah and Abraham, they're going along. They're doing some stuff right. They're trusting God. Then they're messing other stuff up. But it doesn't seem to derail kind of what's promised to them or the plan. Like, it doesn't change it. Yeah. So I think you're hitting on two important questions. Does Abram's and Sarai's failures make God's faithfulness go away? And then second, are there in breakings of the results of sin in their own life. In answer to the second question, their sin results in trouble and travesty for both of them. 
So for example, after Hagar becomes pregnant and Sarai sees that, there's now contempt between Hagar and Sarai, so much so that Sarai blames Abram for her suffering. And there's there's marital strife between Sarai and Abraham. And um, same thing with their children. Later on, Ishmael and Isaac are going to be at odds. More than that, in, in answer to the first question, does their faithlessness nullify or do away with the faithfulness of God? The answer is no. And that's what I think Moses wants us to see, is that over and over again, God's people fail. They fail to be faithful, yet God's faithfulness remains. So as we walk away from a text like this, I think we want to say, Abram, Sarai, and Hagar all experienced death in a sense. There were negative consequences in their experience because of their sin. So therefore, we should be discouraged against trying to circumvent God's ways and God's word and God's plan, because ultimately, we're not going to achieve what he's promised apart from him. But we can also say that despite our failings, despite our waywardness and sinfulness, God often shows grace and mercy and faithfulness, regardless of how we we respond to him. One thing in chapter 17 that I wanted to look at before we move on is that it seems like there's a repetition of the covenant with Abram, but this time there's a couple things added. Abram and Sarai's names are changed, and we see a sign of the covenant added. What's the significance of these changes? Is there a progression of this covenant, or is it a reiteration? What What's going on here? Well, you guys will probably not be surprised at this, but these things are disputed. Um, some people identify multiple covenants with Abraham at play here. I think it's just an expansion of the covenant, and as these promises come closer to fruition, there are more details that are added and the relationship progresses. And I think that's just the nature of covenants. Um, It creates a kinship relationship, so we aren't surprised to see this develop along the way. But you're right, the names are changed, and the names of Abram to Abraham and Sarai to Sarah indicate the faithfulness of God, that he'll actually bring his promises about. And more than that, I think, is the sign of the covenant, circumcision is added here. It begins to show that this covenant is truly a relational reality. So sometimes when people talk about biblical covenants, they'll talk about conditional and unconditional covenants. And they'll talk about conditional covenants as if, you know, the lesser party fulfills all of their obligations and the promises of the greater party will come true. Um, Unconditional means that even if the lesser party fails to maintain their obligations, they'll still receive all of the blessings. But in this case, I think we start to see that this covenant with Abraham is both conditional and unconditional. And that's the way relationships are. Um, There are obligations that are shared mutually with one another. And God is calling on Abraham in chapter 17 to live in his presence and be blameless. And that includes carrying on the sign of the covenant, circumcision. And circumcision might be weird to talk about. Um, It's certainly practiced in our day, though not religiously or ritually, just more hygienically. Uh, But this rite of circumcision was not uncommon in the ancient Near East. Other cultures in that area and religions practice it, sometimes with religious meaning, perhaps other times not. Um, But God uses that here as the sign of the covenant. And um, I think this is hard for us to hold on to because there are probably multiple meanings. So when we think of signs, 
often a sign is multifaceted, right? It, it has multi, multiple meanings. So in this case, there's the indication that if you fail to maintain the covenant, you'll be cut off. And so that's very closely connected to circumcision there. Another piece that Abraham in particular probably thought about was this sign of the covenant is involving the member of my body that's going to need to be preserved if I'm going to bear a son. And you can imagine in the ancient days, probably medical practices were not as sterile and secure as they are now. So in a sense, you have to trust the Lord that I'm going to go through this operation and you're going to protect me so that I can still have a son. It's an act of faith, right? It, it ultimately is an act of faith. Right. So there, there are multiple facets of meaning here connected to the sign of the covenant. And beyond that, there's something that we just have to say that we aren't experiencing that as a sign of the covenant, but there might be even going through the act, a formative piece of that calls on the individual to have faith. As we see Abraham and his whole household, every male being circumcised. And these are adults. These are not young infants. As challenging as and as much of a test of faith as it would be for Abraham to be circumcised, a bigger test of faith is coming in chapter 22. Paul in Romans 4 seems to be gleaming a lot from the scenario here in Genesis 15 and in chapter 17 when he talks about the faith of Abraham. And I just wanted to comment quickly that I think we should have all of these scenarios in mind when we talk about the faith of Abraham. There's a lot of situations where Abraham is required to have faith in God's promises. And it it isn't just one of the scenarios, either sacrificing his son Isaac or just trusting the promise of God when God has talked to him over many decades of time where he has been forced to believe God's promises and leave his family or trust in the promise that at his age he's going to have a child. I just think that's something we should be keeping in mind as we read the Old Testament and the New Testament together and as we move through the book of Genesis. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the way that Paul talks about this in Romans 4, he he's making the point that Abraham was counted as righteous prior to circumcision. So this keeping the sign of the covenant is not what made him righteous, but God declared him righteous on the basis of faith ahead of time. Uh, but then a different New Testament author, James, is going to reference this verse in a very, very different way. James is trying to show that even though Abram was declared righteous in Genesis 15, 6, when we look at Abram acting in Genesis 22, that proved that what was said about him was true. So the New Testament authors are concerned to show that righteousness and faith include action, but ultimately it's it's an act of faith and God's crediting of righteousness to that individual that's at stake. And as we get into this section with Genesis 18 through 19, uh, we start to wonder, is God going to bless people through Abraham or not? Is Abram going to be an effective mediator before God? Is God going to listen to him? So you can't really read, in my opinion, Genesis 18 without also reading Genesis 19 with it. Uh, these two go together, and there are so many parallels between the two. For instance, both men, Abram and Lot, are approached, in a sense, by these angelic beings, and then both of them get up to greet them. 
when Abraham greets them, he invites them to a meal and they willingly accept. When Lot greets them, he almost has to, in an embarrassing way, convince them to eat with him. You know, they keep rejecting his offer over and over again. And then they eventually eat with him. When the, these men are with Abram, the Lord pronounces a blessing on Abram and his offspring. When these men are with Lot, they pronounce a curse on the city, essentially. So there's like an opposite thing happening there. You see a contrast between the women or maybe a parallel, a comparison, where Sarah hears the blessing of the Lord and she laughs in disbelief, it seems, but Yahweh still provides a blessing. Well, then Lot's wife responds by disobeying these men and looking back at the city and, and instead of getting a blessing, she gets a curse of being turned into a pillar of salt or perhaps the, the sulfuric fire consumes her. And then you know, Yahweh's faithfulness and covenantal love is shown to Abram as he reveals his plan to them. And ultimately, Lot finds out the plan ahead of time as well. And he's warned love and mercy are shown to him. And he he almost refuses. In fact, these men have to grab him by the hand to make him accept the protection of the Lord, whereas Abram's pleading for the protection of the Lord. Abram appeals to the Lord as the judge of all the earth. When Lot talks to the men of the city, they ridicule him saying, who made you a judge over us? So if you read these two accounts together, there are a lot of parallels and contrast between the two. Um, but ultimately, I think you start to see that Abram is participating in, in the promises that God has made. He's seeking to live blamelessly before the Lord and God has been faithful to him. Lot, on the other hand, I think, starts to resist the Lord, reject the Lord, yet you see God's mercy to him anyway. Then as we look at the larger witness of the scripture, the, the New Testament authors can say righteous lot. They can describe him in that way. And we start to see that this guy who lived his life on the edge of wickedness, who did wicked things like offering his daughters out to the, the men of the city, this guy who by all accounts we would say is wicked, somehow can be declared righteous. And I think we start to see ourselves there as well, that God God is faithful even when we're unfaithful. God shows mercy to us when we don't deserve it. When we see him interact with Abram, he proves himself faithful. As we move on to Genesis 22, we see that God tests Abraham. The way we should read this story is by reading it through the lens of James. We read the Bible backwards we read it forwards and backwards. And so there's benefit in reading this as a progression of Abram's life. Though sometimes when people do that, they get this idea that Abraham was this naive guy and that God is this cruel, vindictive, manipulative deity. And they misconstrue this whole situation. But if we read it through the lens of the book of James, where James starts out by saying, count all trials is joy because God is testing you and he's developing your faith and he's going to bring you out with stronger faith and more perfect and complete lacking nothing. And then James recognizes that sometimes when we face trials, we might be tempted to say, God is testing me and God is trying to make me sin and any sinful response that I have is ultimately God's fault. And James will say, no, God doesn't, God doesn't tempt anybody, even when he's testing them. He's not tempting them. 
And then later on, James will point to the fact that God declared Abraham righteous in Genesis 15, and that declaration was proved true when Abram was willing to sacrifice his son Isaac in Genesis 22. So what James's point is, is that sometimes, and perhaps often, God will test his people for their own good. So it's like the refining, purifying fire where this gold with impurities is melted down. It's ultimately a good thing if we respond correctly and we need to think of God correctly throughout. So when we take what James says and the way he reads this narrative and we read it through that lens, we start to see that God is not doing something manipulative or evil. Instead, this is ultimately for Abraham's good. So when when he's tested, I think Abraham knows that. This is a guy who is wise enough to believe that God could bring life from the dead. This is a guy who throughout, and I think the narrator gives us clues as he talks to the men about coming back after they've worshiped the Lord. Abraham believes and knows he's being tested by God so that his faith would be demonstrated and strengthened. I would just want to point out that after Abraham is ready to offer Isaac and God instead provides a substitute lamb, then God speaks to Abraham through the angel and swears by himself that he's going to fulfill all of the promises that he's made. And and there's this line that your offspring will possess the city gates of their enemies And all the nations of the earth will be blessed by your offspring because you have obeyed my command. And I think this carries forward and continues to introduce this challenging idea that God's kingdom ultimately will spread across the globe, but it's a spreading that is willing to make any who resist their friend and to bless them. So certainly God's conquering sometimes comes through the judgment of his enemies, but it seems over and over again, there's an offer of blessing on those exact individuals. So sometimes the nations will resist God and they'll be defeated. We see that through the rest of the Bible, but God seems to over and over again, offer them blessing instead of judgment if they align themselves with God and his purposes and enter into his kingdom. And that's a message that's picked up in the New Testament as well, even as we soon transition back into the book of Matthew, where John the Baptist is declaring, you brood of vipers, you know, there's this warning of judgment because Jesus will baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire, and that fire will either refine or destroy. We look back all the way to the beginning that there's almost this message of the gospel that God is king and his kingship is an offer of blessing for all who will receive it. Um, But for those who reject it, their city gates will be defeated. I think when we look at the imagery of Isaac on the altar, we instinctively make New Testament connections. Signs have multiple meanings, and metaphors have multiple, we, we could say they're multivalent, right? So when we look at this, we could, in one instance, look at the ram, the this lamb that's offered in place of Isaac, and say, the lamb is like Jesus, who sacrificed on our behalf. Um, but then also we could look at Isaac and say, Isaac is like Jesus, the son who willingly gave himself up to be sacrificed. And I think both of those things are really good to meditate on. But ultimately, I think we want to understand God's faithfulness and the demonstration of Abraham's faith here. So as we read Old Testament stories like this, 
I think we need to chew them over and reflect on them and meditate on them and squeeze them for all that they have in them. And we need to resist saying that there's one point or one idea to every narrative. And this is one of the most clear examples of that is the multifaceted, multivalent features of this story are just so obvious. That brings us to chapter 24, the longest chapter in the book of Genesis. And the most repetitive chapter in the book of Genesis. Have you re- read Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban? It's, it's, that's the good repetitive where you see the same story from different vantage points. Mm-hmm. You see the story from Harry's perspective and then Hermione's perspective. But this is not like that. This is a shot-for-shot remake, and we hear the same story again. Why is Moses doing this here with this love story? Why is this, why is this so important, these repetitive details? Well, there are probably several answers to that question. And I think we just recognize as we read the Old Testament, there are many sections that are repetitive, but few are as repetitive as this because it is, like you said, almost a shot-for-shot retelling of the situation. And I think what we should gain from this is just how miraculous and stunning it was that God provided a wife for Isaac and that God is working once again just as he did with Abraham, now with Abraham's offspring. God hasn't gone silent on them. And with this servant, you can imagine being in his situation where if all of these things happened to you, you would probably be happy to retell the situation. So I think we should just gain from the repetition the miraculous and astounding nature of what took place, even though we might be bored by the repetition. Genesis 25, we see that Abraham dies, and we see the, the seed of the line of the Lord is difficult again. We see Isaac praying to the Lord because Rebekah is barren. The Lord answers the prayer of Isaac, and Rebekah conceives with twins. And we're told that Isaac loves Esau, and Rebekah loves Jacob. Yeah, the plot definitely thickens here because the the Lord tells Rebekah that the older is going to serve the younger but you find the father loving the older and the mother loving the younger. And it seems like the father knows that the younger is going to serve the older. And this sets up the plot scene later on, which we'll talk about next time. But we we start to see that there are going to be some problems down the road regarding the way that the parents look at the children. But then at the end of chapter 25, we start to see that the children themselves are really opposed to one another. And as we look at this, I think Jacob is portrayed as sort of a homie sort of a guy. And Esau is portrayed as probably a not super intelligent redneck is the way that we might say it. Because when he comes back from hunting and he sees Jacob making, you know, maybe an Instagrammable meal, he looks at it and calls it that red stuff. You know, he, he's just this roughneck sort of hunter. And we see two brothers who couldn't be more different. So that is the making of a good sibling rivalry, as we'll see down the road. The author of Hebrews actually gives a warning against being the type of person that Esau was. Hebrews 12, verse 15 and 16. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. 
For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. I think it's a lesson of being this type of unthinking person who's passionate about his interests but does not care for the things of God. Yeah, I think that as we read the Old Testament, ultimately we want to see God's action in the Old Testament, but we also should learn from the characters in the Old Testament. And the author of Hebrews is looking back at Esau and saying, look, when you're living your Christian life and what you're experiencing is the here and now, and you're tempted to indulge the passions of your flesh and the lusts of your heart instead of living in a way that honors God with an eye to the next life, you're being like Esau, who all he cared about in that moment was getting his belly full, and he didn't care about his birthright. He didn't care about the future. So don't be the kind of people who live in this life controlled by your emotions and your passions. Instead, be the kind of people who can see beyond the immediate to the future and orient your life based on what is to come, not on what you're experiencing now. So it's almost as if the author of Hebrews is saying, look, you know, the the Old Testament isn't just a morality tale, but we do learn morality from the Old Testament. And, And part of that is learning not to be impulsive people. Chapter 27, it's a narrative of Jacob deceiving Isaac with the help of Rebekah. Yeah, okay, so I, I want to throw something out here, and I might be wrong about this, um, but I think this might be ex- an example of an individual who is being as wise as a serpent and almost as harmless as a dove. So I don't want to be too hard on Rebekah, who's deceiving Isaac and who's leading Jacob to deceive. I think there is some gray, ambiguous questionable morality here. But I think in the end, Rebecca did what was right. Because as we've just discussed, the Lord himself told her, the older will serve the younger. Isaac seems like he knows this. And Isaac is dead set on blessing the older instead of the younger. Should Rebecca have appealed to Isaac and said, look, you know what the word of the Lord is. We need to obey the Lord. Perhaps. Was that an option for her? I don't know. Ultimately, Through her cunning, the Lord's word comes to pass. And I think I see some parallels in this between, you know, between Rebecca and Naomi, where Naomi commissions Ruth to act in a way that seems morally ambiguous to fulfill all righteousness, to embody God's will in God's law. So I would hesitate to be too harsh on Rebecca, even though our moral vision might be a bit clouded here. What we see here is God's word coming to fruition. And I think it's more like what Naomi does with Ruth than it is what Sarai does with Hagar. So when we look at those two things, if we put Sarai's conniving with Hagar to bring about an offspring on the bad end of the spectrum and Naomi instructing Ruth on the good end of the spectrum, I think Rebecca's more like Ruth. She is like Hagar. We're going to move on to the New Testament reading. Week two is Matthew 6, verse 5, through chapter 10, verse 20. Jesus gives principles for living spiritually in religious life, everyday life, and in community relationships. These passages in chapters 6 through 7, Jesus shows himself as the Messiah in word through his teaching, and in chapters 8 through 9, he shows himself to be the Messiah through miracles. In chapter 10, Jesus commissions the 12 disciples as the Messiah's messengers. So before we talk about 
chapters six and seven and following, I think that I need to follow up on some comments that we made about the book of Matthew in the week one reading. As I've been working on the sermon for Matthew, I've been thinking about this text a bit more, particularly relating to Jesus's baptism. And I think we need to pause and and reflect on that in order to make sense of everything else that follows. As we look at John's baptism, where John is calling people to repent and then to be baptized, I think what John is doing ultimately is he's trying to get people to reenact Israel's experience as they left Egypt. What I want to say here is that John is trying to tell Israel that you're still in exile. Even though you're back in the land, you're still in exile. You are like your fathers who were in Egypt. So if you think about this, when the Israelites left Egypt, they passed through the Red Sea as they were fleeing from Pharaoh, right? When they were leaving Pharaoh's kingdom and they were pursuing God's kingdom. And Paul looks back on that situation and says that your fathers were baptized into Moses in the cloud in the sea. So so their passing through the waters is analogous to baptism. What John the Baptist is trying to do is say, you're reenacting the experience of Israel in the past as you confess your sin, you're repenting because the kingdom of heaven is near. So you're leaving Egypt in a sense, and you're passing through the waters of baptism like your fathers passed through the Red Sea. And so then when you get to Jesus, Jesus tells John the Baptist, I need to be baptized to fulfill all righteousness. And I think what's happening is Jesus is representative of all that Israel should have been. So Jesus, so he didn't need to repent of any sins because he was sinless, still was baptized, standing in solidarity with Israel of old, passing through the Red Sea. And then just as ancient Israel passed through the Red Sea, were baptized in a sense, and entered into the wilderness, Jesus is baptized. He's called God's son. And then he goes into the wilderness, not for 40 years, but for 40 days, as the true Israel. And unlike ancient Israel, who was in the wilderness and was tempted and succumbed to temptation and sinned against God. Jesus was in the wilderness and was tempted by the devil himself and did not succumb to temptation. He did what was right. He was the perfect Israel, the true Israel, the son of God, the perfect man. And he passes through that wilderness experience and then begins preaching, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. And as we look at that whole encounter from Jesus's birth to the killing of children, as Herod is trying to pursue them, Matthew is picturing Jesus as the true Israel in a better Moses. So by the time we get to chapter six, where Jesus is giving essentially a new law, right, is in teaching about what it should look like to live in God's kingdom. He's being pictured as a new and better Moses, the true Israel, who's giving the law of God. So as Jesus gives the law of God, what it looks like to embody kingdom principles and to live in God's kingdom, he begins by, as we discussed last week, intensifying the law. So whether it's adultery or telling the truth or whatever it might be, he he says, you've heard it said, but I say to you. And he gives them what it looks like to live a life that embodies God's law. And then in chapter 6, he transitions into instructions on prayer. And even as we think about Israel in the wilderness, how often did Israel pray 
Instead of praying, they grumbled. Instead of being thankful, they complained. But Jesus gives a different way, and he is the true Israel, and perfect Moses, the perfect mediator, demonstrates what it looks like to speak to God and, and to commune with him in his kingdom. And so he, he gives a way of praying, and, and this is called the Lord's Prayer. Now, there are some church traditions that recite this on the regular. Um, perhaps there are families, even in our church, who would recite this before eating dinner together or something like that. And I think that's really good. I think it's good for us to memorize the Lord's Prayer and to recite the Lord's Prayer. But I think we need to go beyond that as well to allow the motivations and concerns of the prayer that Jesus gives to infiltrate and to shape the way that we pray. Um, I have a question about Matthew 6, 22 and 23. It says, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? Is the eye being the lamp, I mean, is that how you see life, how you see things happen in life? And if you're seeing things as God would want you to see them? Yeah, it's hard to say, and I haven't looked at it deeply, but if we utilize the Christian Standard Bible Study Bible, as we've recommended in the past, um, they have a brief note that mentions that in Jewish writings, a good eye represented a generous attitude and a bad eye, a stingy, miserable attitude. Uh, So the bad eye, an improper perspective on wealth, results in deep internal darkness or into moral blindness that diminishes the ability to see and pursue what is good. So I think in connection with the verses right before it about setting up for yourselves treasures on earth versus treasures in heaven, the point is that if, if you are a stingy sort of person who only values what you can grab onto yourself you're in in you're only concerned about yourself and your comfort and prosperity then ultimately you're you're going to experience a life of darkness um, you won't live a full and filled life yeah so what I'd want to say about this whole section is that when we read the book of Matthew we want to understand that the Christian early Christians thought of this as the gospel according to Matthew this whole thing is the gospel. So when we hear Jesus' teaching about what it looks like to embody the life of the kingdom, to embody kingdom principles, this is part of the gospel. We shouldn't think that these narratives and these teachings of Jesus are extra things that some Christians do or maybe think about, but this is really the stuff of the gospel. So we ought to be thinking about it and then identifying how we embody it in our own day and time. I think maybe there's a tendency among Christians to think a lot about what Paul says, and they forget everything about what Jesus says, but we need to pay attention to this. And as we do so, I think it really does call us to live a life that is countercultural and not intuitive. It calls us to to a life of self-giving, a life of care for others, a life of obedience to King Jesus that just doesn't come naturally and that can only come as we repent and believe the gospel. 
as we move on through the book of Matthew, we come to this account of the centurion's amazing faith in chapter 8, and we see that he understands Jesus' authority, being a man of authority, where he tells men to do things, and they do it because he's in charge, and he just asks Jesus to heal his servant and trust that God will do that. I think that's an important passage, as Jesus points out, that he had never seen faith from the people of Israel, let alone a Gentile. But it seems like that faith is a theme that we see through these chapters here from, you know, in chapter 6 through chapter 9. Jesus gives examples of how a person's faith can be expressed in a hypocritical way when either giving to the needy or praying or fasting in chapter 6. His teachings show that one should have faith instead of being anxious about food, drink, or clothes. The man had faith that God would cleanse him from his leprosy in chapter 8. The centurion's faith, as we've already mentioned. The little faith of the disciples when Jesus calms the storm. The faith of friends of the paralytic in chapter 9. Faith of a leader whose daughter died in chapter 9, 18 through 25. And the woman who suffered from bleeding 12 years later in chapter 9, Jesus tells her, your faith has saved you. Lastly, the healing of the blind men in chapter 9, Jesus asks them, do you believe that I can do this? They say, yes, Lord. And Jesus responds with, let it be done according to your faith. I think Jesus' point here is that a person's inclusion into the kingdom is not about doing good things or keeping the letter of the law like Pharisees and Sadducees. It's about building our house of faith on the rock that is him. I think that's exactly right, and I think it expands beyond that to say that the kingdom is available to all who exercise this faith. So over and over again, we'll see there are notable examples of Gentiles who are exercising this faith, the kind of faith not observed anywhere else in Israel. Now, this has been true from the very beginning, hasn't it, with the wise men who come, these pagans who come to worship King Jesus in these individuals now who are exercising faith, the kingdom will have no territorial boundaries. It will spread across the globe. So all who exercise faith are welcomed. And I think that's what Jesus's message is. He goes around at the end of chapter 9 to all the towns and villages, teaching in the synagogues and preaching the good news of the kingdom. And then he laments that the workers are so few that the harvest is plentiful. And so that, I think, is a call to us as well, to see that God's kingdom expands across the globe, and we can be a worker in God's kingdom. We can be a participant in God's kingdom by faith. I had a question about the end of Matthew 8, where um, the demons are cast into the pigs, and then they all essentially perish. The herdsmen from the city aren't really happy with losing all their pigs, and they beg Jesus to leave the region. Again, it's kind of an odd story. Should we take away from that, that these were, it was a Gentile city or village or something since they had pigs? Like the Jewish people, they weren't supposed to do anything with pigs. Isn't that right? That's a good question. I think I would just point you to Josh's sermon on Mark's edition of this event. Uh, where he talks about this more. I don't recall everything that Josh said. I don't know if it was primarily Jew or Gentile, but I think it is ironic that there's a large herd of these <laughs> unclean animals in this area. When we read this story, I think we, j- we just want to understand that Jesus has authority over these demons, that they recognize his identity as the Son of God. And then we see that sad end of the story that the whole town went out to meet Jesus and they begged him to leave their region. 
they didn't want God's kingdom present in their region. And so it, it leaves us with this impression of individuals who fail to receive the kingdom of God in contrast to others who seek Jesus out um, because their faith is great and they desire God's kingdom. So is this kind of another example of people just having their perspective on the wrong things and just valuing the wrong things and missing kind of the bigger picture of what was going on and what Jesus did, who he was. They were just focused on the day-to-day. Oh my gosh, all my pigs are gone. What am I going to do? This guy killed them all. Get them out of here. Like, I guess, is that just kind of a lesson to just have the proper perspective? I think so. And I think it's similar to Lot's wife looking back. I think it's similar to things we read about in the book of Acts where idol makers are put out of business because everything, everyone's worshiping God now. And so, so they have no clientele to purchase these false gods. It really is a competition of kingdom values, isn't it? These individuals, likely these pigs are their, their livelihood, but beyond that, they're seeing this individual do incredible things and they're unwilling to receive it. They're un- unwilling to receive Christ's kingdom and authority and rulership, so they ask him to leave. I think maybe we can be in that same place too, can't we? Um, not because we see... Jesus standing before us, casting out demons into whatever our area of employment is. But I think as we look at Jesus's commands and his kingdom, when it doesn't benefit us, we can really perhaps want Jesus to leave. We can want his kingdom to go so that we can prosper in the way that we want to. And so we should, I think, learn from these individuals to follow Jesus even when it costs us and and to receive his kingdom. In our last episode, we weren't able to cover much from the Psalms. So I would just want to point out that Psalm 1 and 2 are the introduction to the Psalter, and just about everything connects back to them. More than that, as we read the Psalms, I think we have to read them in multiple ways. When we read the Bible going forwards, most of the Psalms we read is the, the Psalms of David, God's anointed king, but reading backwards after Jesus has come, we often see these psalms as songs by or for or about the Messiah, about Jesus. And ultimately, you know, in Psalm 2, when we talk about God's anointed king, the one who about whom he says, you are my son, today I have become your father. Ask of me and I'll make the nations your inheritance and the ends of earth your possession. You'll break them with an iron scepter, you'll shatter them like pottery. We understand that in a meta way, these are really ultimately either for or about Jesus. So as we continue to read the Psalms after this introduction, I think we need to read them in multiple ways. We need to, as we read the New Testament, recognize where New Testament authors are quoting from the Psalms. Uh, But then as we get into Psalm 6 and 7 in particular, as we look at the prayers of David in these Psalms, we want to recognize that they're ultimately answered in the Messiah. Um, Certainly, David experienced the answer to prayer in his own day, but as we look at these prayers for mercy, for the expression of God's faithful love, as we look at prayers for justice, ultimately we understand that these come true in the first coming of Jesus, and they'll come true forever in the second coming of Christ on the final day. Um, Psalm 7, verses 14, kind of roughly like 14 through 16, I mean, that kind of reminded me of Sodom and Gomorrah 
where it says, uh, Behold, the wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief and gives birth to lies, makes a pit, digging it out, and falls into the hole that he has made. His mischief returns upon his own head and on his own skull. His violence descends. I mean, that's just kind of what happened in Sodom and Gomorrah. People are evil, and it it just comes back to destroy themselves. And I think you referenced that concept in our last episode about... Uh, when you sin, it, it really just comes back on you. And here we see an example of the psalmist David here talking about the wicked who sin, and ultimately their acts of violence and wickedness just come back on themselves. And uh, they, they get caught in their own snare, I think is the proverb that we were, we were talking about. Um, so it does show, you know, show the, in one sense, the law of the seed and the fruit, right? What, what you sow, you're also going to reap. And uh, similarly, when we move to uh, the passages and Proverbs that we read, um, I was reminded of Lot's future son-in-laws um, to where they didn't listen to the warning. They thought it was a joke. They ignored it and they came to destruction. And that, I mean, it's almost kind of, word for word in Proverbs, um, starting in verse 24 of chapter 1, because I have called and you refuse to listen, have stretched out my hand and no one has heeded, because you have ignored all my counsel and would have none of my reproof, I, I also will laugh at your calamity and will mock when terror strikes you, when terror strikes you like a storm and your calamity comes like a whirlwind, when distress and anguish come upon you. Then they will call on me, but I will not answer. I'm sure that was a lot of people in the city that had heard warning or, you know, oh, whatever, God's not going to do anything, God's not real, or whatever. Once that started raining down from the sky, I bet there were a lot of people in the city that realized and were like, oh, shoot, I should have repented. I need to repent right now, but it's just it's too late, and they come to destruction. Yeah, and I think we return to that theme of God is compassionate, he's merciful, he's faithful, but he also does rain down judgment, doesn't he? And so we need the fear of the Lord, and that's how the whole book of Proverbs starts, doesn't it? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. So I think the guy writing Proverbs, Solomon here, probably is saying, look, wisdom, fear of the Lord is like the letters of the alphabet. So you, you need the fear of the Lord in order to have wisdom in the same way that you need to know the letter of the alphabet in order to know how to read. Without it, that's just fundamental to life and wisdom. So you have to have that. So as you were talking about the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, you think about Lot's sons who thought Lot was joking. They just had no fear of the Lord. They didn't have the letters of the alphabet to read the sentences of God's salvation, did they? And so we, we need that. And without it, we will only pursue our own devices, and those come back on us. They catch us in a snare. And unfortunately, sometimes by the time we recognize it, it's too late, and God's compassion has left us for his judgment. We can be thankful today for the scriptures. Praise God for his wondrous works that he's revealed to us. As we praise him, we can meditate on his faithfulness in our lives and the faithfulness that he's shown to those in redemption history. This podcast is a ministry of Resurrection Church. You can find out more at resurrectionmn.org.